Welcome to a special episode of PolicyWise. Today, we'll be spicing it up a bit. We will be playing audio from the 2020 California Economic Summit, hosted by California Forward. The Young Leaders Advisory Council hosted an associated event that culminated in a panel with Julia, Ashley, Stephanie, and Mahek, moderated by Candice Mays of The Voice Media Ventures, focused on a discussion designed to explore the social implications of failing to properly invest in Black, Indigenous, people of color, and underserved communities. The discussion explores the impact of external social narratives in supporting systemic racism through education, social inclusion, and mental health. These points have become an undeniable focus in the national dialogue in response to the Black Lives Matter movement and the resounding call for social justice and systemic change. Listen to these amazing young folks begin to reimagine the California dream and work towards developing a California for all. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you so much. So moving forward with the with our next um, with our fireside chat discussion, actually, we're going to introduce Mahek Kandrew, Stephanie and Julia. They'll be joining us in the next discussion um, and also our speaker. So thank you so much. We want to welcome Candice Mays, the project manager with Voice Media Ventures. She's currently developing the Mapping Black California Community Mapping Project. The project uses GIS data to tell the story of historical and current migration patterns of all Black Californians through the state. Candace has been an English and language arts teacher for middle and high school students. She earned her master's in fine arts with a focus on creative writing from the University of Miami. She's a proud native of the Inland Empire, and we are excited to have her to moderate our discussion today. So without further ado, I will hand the virtual mic over to Candace to begin our fireside chat discussion. Thank you so much, Amber, for that wonderful introduction. And thank you so much to California Forward for having me here today. As I was listening to the presentations that preceded this conversation, I heard a lot about the origin of California dreams and how they have evolved and changed and in some ways been reduced through societal impacts and experiences. So my first question to the group is, what was your California dream and how has your personal experience influenced this idea? So my California dream was kind of always what my parents had told me California was symbolic of. And that was that California was a place where anyone could become anything and that I could be whatever I wanted as long as I worked hard enough for it. And for the most part, this was true. I grew up super privileged. I was in a little kind of bubble of success where everyone around me went to college and was able to obtain all of their dreams. Um, unfortunately, though, as soon as I left that bubble, I realized that this isn't the case for everyone, um, which definitely should change and everyone should be able to have that same California dream that I had growing up. Kind of building off of what Julia was saying, a lot of my perception of what I can accomplish here in California um, is based off of what I learned from my parents. They immigrated here from India. And so for them, California has always been a place of innovation, a place where you can accomplish a lot of great things. For me, similar to Julia, even when I've been in places where I felt like that has been compromised or that's not the case, I was very fortunate to have them to keep me on that track and keep me on that path. Like everyone else, my dream was based on my mo my mother as well. Um, however, it was a little different. Um, so my California dream was a little limited, and I didn't really because of the opportunities available to me. I wasn't I didn't know that there was a broader world out there for me. And so my California dream was to just graduate high school because that's something that my family had to try and get, and no one in my family, well, my my personal inner family had got gotten to. And I would say um, for me, um, where I come from is in the Bay Area in Richmond, um, there was no California dream growing up. I didn't have one when I was growing up. 
coming from a family of immigrants and being a product of immigration, it was about how we survived collectively to gain that economic mobility. And I think that the only success that I tied myself to was to my parents' success and was that experience and seeing my family business, being independent off those things. I, to me, that was my California dream. Wow. The idea of the California dream shifting based upon what your parents are able to accomplish or what's been around you is, is, is really impactful and really profound. I'm working on a piece right now about the integration of Compton. And it's so crazy to be writing about the hopes of incoming Black Compton residents and thinking about what Compton turned into today, being that it is originally a middle class suburb. Along those lines, how has your experience as a person growing up in California influence your options and decision making. Ashley, you touched a little bit on having limited opportunities yourself. Yeah, so um, I grew up in South Central LA. And so um, I think just living in that environment is, uh, is how influenced my options and decision making. And I, I definitely noticed a lot of differences um, uh, in my education system, uh, and most importantly there. Um, when I moved to uh, Covina. And so Covina is only 30 minutes away. It's not a lot far drive. It's not, not much of a different environment. However, the, the difference in education uh, was completely extreme. And I think once I learned that um, there was places um, in different districts that learned differently, I actually learned that um, my options could go beyond me. And so that was a very insightful thing and it has changed my, my path and my trajectory of my life um, since. Yeah, and I think for me, you know, growing up in the environment, like I, I didn't see that there was opportunities, but I did hear about them all the time. I heard, I saw them in the news. I heard about them with my teachers. I heard about them everywhere, but I just never was able to realize that growing up. And so going to school, I realized being able to put in that hard work in the classroom, what that can actually lead to, and really having that inspiration and that motivation to continue working in the classroom. And at first, the opportunities do seem super small, but it come it flourished in something so much greater than I even that I ever would thought of. And just, you know, thinking right now, like breaking those thresholds of being the first person on both sides of my family to ever graduate has just been a milestone. Although um, right now in really difficult times with COVID, we did we we did have to have that virtual grad. So I graduated from my living room, which is pretty cool. <laughs> but being able to still do that, I think that that was just phenomenal for my family. Um, so I grew up in a school district where college was the answer. So it wasn't even an option about whether or not I would go to a four-year. It was just something that was kind of told to me since I was in kindergarten. And so from kindergarten all through my senior year of high school, we had spirit days where we were, both, where we were told to wear like the um, shirt from where our parents went to school. And then as we got older, it kind of turned into wear the shirt of the school that you want to go to. And if you wore anything other than a UC or an Ivy League shirt, you were kind of frowned upon or like really want to go to that school and it was this kind of I don't know it was almost like this conditioning of what I was supposed to be set up for and what I was supposed to obtain and that everything other than that would um kind of end in failure and so I don't know if this is the answer but it definitely did to some extent create the options that I had and it was always you know I knew I was always working towards a four-year degree and so all of my choices and decisions up to my senior year of high school helped to facilitate that and probably set me up for better success. 
Um, I had a similar experience for me. I'm a senior in high school right now, so I'm applying to college. Um, and a lot of my perceptions of what my future will look like and what ideas I have for myself um, are very heavily influenced by what I was taught when I was younger. Um, and so a lot of the goals that people set for themselves are definitely a product of the environment that they are a part of. I've definitely experienced both sides of that that situation. I, in high school, was on the AP track, so college was definitely an expectation. However, our expectations of where we could apply to school were definitely mitigated and reduced only to looking at UCs and CSUs, which are perfectly fine, but we all know there's so many more options. I also think about in my school how we were required to write a 10-page research paper every school year, and it was so taxing for us as students, but it was explained, that's what's going to be expected of you in college. And when I got to college, I was fully prepared because I had worked on those papers for so long versus I saw other students who were really struggling. And so for some like Julia, college is not an option, but a destination versus there, there are students like Stephanie who, who don't see opportunities in their school, but hear about them elsewhere. And since school is often our first place of learning about what's possible outside of the home, my question is, does our education system set students up for success? And if not, what ways are students' dreams of what's possible intentionally limited? So like I said, I, I moved from South Central to Covina. And so um, something that was very interesting to me was that the books. So, um, and just a quick thing is that in South Central, um, as some of my, my K through eight education, we didn't have enough books for each person. And so when I moved to Covina and everyone had a book for themselves that wasn't um, damaged and everyone had that, that opportunity, it was very shocking to me. And I think that experience, um, that, that, that's something a lot of students uh, also go through. Um, and a, another thing is that um, the, I remember reading uh, books in my, my school and we only had two required. However, in um, Covina, we had, they had already blew past our two books that we had to read and we're on a third book. And um, I just noticed the difference in curriculum and it made me feel like I wasn't like on the same page as everyone. And I felt kind of behind as I was going through these, these, um, th these different school systems. And you know, that, that definitely sets up a student to not feel like like that sense of belonging and um, starting to not feel like they belong in that school or, or learning different things. And um, just my last thing is that um, I think that it's, it's uh, setting those students up in that way um, definitely impacts their like mental and like ability to be able to just be there and learn as a student. If we all go to California schools, like we should all be learning something similar. Yeah, and just following along um, on the on the touch of resources is is just seeing that the resources were not available to to many students. I mean, especially when we talk about higher higher education students and the inaccessibility of a lot of undocumented students. Um, personally, I I first going into um, San Diego State. Um, I was not fully aware of the financial aid services. This was not told to me when I was when I was in um, in high school. Although I, I do believe there, there, there could be an opportunity to increase awareness of these programs, um, but I was not fully aware until I was able to be a part of the education opportunity program on campus that's directly steered to a lot of Pell students, low income students and undocumented students. And so being able to be a part of that program really nourished me and allowed me to take me step by step with the financial aid process. And thankfully I was able to get my tuition paid for for the last two years of college 
which was really truly helpful because it allowed me to boost in my career path. And not even that, but also thinking about how already there is a limitation for undocumented students. And the rate of them applying for the DREAM Act is so low because they're not aware of these resources. So I think that one, it's the resources, but it's also the curriculum that's in the classroom. And what, what, what is it that we're teaching to these students? And what is it that is, is motivating them to continue in their education studies despite the financial insecurity that they're experiencing? Going off of that, I'm um, just going back to what Ashley said. I just now thought of the fact that I had two sets of textbooks, one for at school and one for at home in high school. And I didn't realize how insanely privileged that was to think about that other people don't have that, um, which why that needs to change. Um, but I also think that the education system kind of along those lines sets certain people up for success. And I think it kind of conditions people to stay within a certain box of that that is labeled as success. And that box of success kind of changes depending on what school you're attending or the resources that you have. And so for me, something that was super impactful is, you know, as I said, I grew up knowing that I needed to go to a four year. But at the end of my junior year of high school, I had enough credits to graduate. And I went into my college counselor and I said, hey, like, I want to graduate. I want to go to community college um, so I can like, jumpstart that college career kind of path. And she literally told me that I would either end up homeless or fail or not get a job and that I wouldn't be successful if I chose to do that. And it really, I mean, impacted the way that I saw success because now I all of a sudden associated community college with failure, which it's a completely viable option. I know tons of people who have gone there and gone on to be way more successful than they would have if they hadn't attended community college. And so, I don't know, it just brings me back to that kind of conditioning of what success looks like and conditioning of what is attainable for certain people given their resources. Um, we had a similar experience at my school. I think that there's, you know, restrictions put in place by limitation of physical resources. And then there's just the things that we are told by the adults around us that impact what we believe we can accomplish. And so at my school, we had a large student stress problem. And my freshman year, the presentation to combat student stress was titled, Not Everyone Can Go to Harvard or Berkeley. And so right off the bat for a freshman student to hear that, it's sort of like saying, you know, don't aim high or don't try to accomplish these things because not everyone can do it and you are part of that group that cannot. And so a lot of that rhetoric definitely impacts students. Um, building off to the community college point, certain schools, um, I know mine does this, makes it intentionally harder for a lot of high school students to sign up for classes, um, automatically making it so that we really, really have to go out of our way to get these resources and be able to, you know, graduate earlier from college or eliminate a lot of financial obstacles. And then with financial obstacles, um, Stephanie said this perfectly, there's a lot of resources there, but we don't know about them. Oftentimes, we just look at the sticker price that we see online, and it's very large, and that's intimidating, and we automatically say, okay, that's not an option for me, when it could very well be. Um, and so I think there's a lot of factors that definitely are restricting us in that sense as students. Mahek, you brought up a really great point about the fact that sometimes schools make it intentionally difficult for students to be able to sign up for certain classes or to access certain resources. Um, when I was in middle school, I was in what I considered the wrong algebra class. And I went home and told my mother, I want to be in this class in this different track. And the only reason I knew I could do that was because my friend's parents were teachers. And so my friends were getting moved around all the time because their teachers knew the process and the same in college like there's oftentimes when I had to advocate for my own academic schedule within the program that I was that I was enrolled in um, and so what I'm hearing is 
when students are sort of a process, you know, there's having the resource be available to the student. There's having the student's access, right? Access is a big factor beyond the resource availability and knowledge. Um, what factors play a role in deciding access to these opportunities for students? I can think specifically when we look at the, I think the, the biggest thing is finan the financing and being able to have that, that federal support and social services that allow you to strive in the classroom. And so um, there was a campaign, an issue advocacy, advocacy campaign that is broken financial aid system and fixing that financial aid system that was laid, led by the California State Student Association. And they were able to talk to legislators about what how important having this funding is for students on campus. And as I touched on previously, undocumented students as well, being able to have those finances and that dream act, dream act application so that they can continue going. I think in, in terms for me and being able to have that financial aid in those last two years of my college, I was, I have throughout school. And I think that one of the things about access is being, being able to see that not everyone comes from the same point of advantage. A lot of people are already disadvantaged when they're coming into the to commute to the college system. And this this leaves, you know, about undocumented students, but also thinking about how transfer students and that big uh, four-year institution and how how difficult that is already when it comes to the curriculum and all those transfer credits. Kind of touching off of what Candace said about tracking, um, so I'm a, I'm a psych student, so I just this psych study just always comes back to my brain when I think about opportunities for success. And so there's lots of schools in California are tracked. You're either on the AP honors track or you're on the normal kind of average um, class track. And so typically that's segregated by race. And the people who are on the AP and honors track tend to go to four-year colleges and people who are in regular classes tend to go to community colleges or just finish after high school. Um, and so these teachers actually teach the classes differently based off of um, what level it is. I mean, obviously that's what AP classes and normal classes are. But if you take the people who were like in their in their junior or senior year, if you take people who weren't tracked for AP and if you take the regular or and the AP cl kid, class kids and you put them together and they're actually taught by the same teacher, they will actually have the same academic achievement as um, the people who were tracked and weren't tracked. And so that kind of just shows that everyone who is given the same resources and the same factors can succeed to the same extent if just given the same opportunities. And yeah, going off of your point, Julia, um, I definitely noticed that um, there's a difference uh, in high school. Uh, you're to graduate, you're, you don't have to meet the A through G requirements. And so that was something that I didn't even know, like your graduation requirements are so different than the A through G requirements. So that if you even thought, if maybe you didn't know freshman year that you wanted to go to college, if you didn't start know that from the jump, then you're not gonna be able to be on the right path to get to a four year college if that's your goal. Because, and so I think that that, um, that difference in opportunities is how we create a setback in our learning. And you know, you're limiting your students if you don't provide them with all the resources available. It's so interesting, the conversation about tracking, because 
the system simultaneously built in these, these ways of having a lack of options. For example, when I was a public school teacher in New York City, I taught at a very progressive school who, you know, had a special permission from the state to not do testing. Instead, we did, we did end-of-the-year projects for students to graduate. And tracking became something that we argued about inter- internally because while we understood that tracking limited certain students' opportunities, for our students who weren't able to take AP classes, they were also limited in what schools they could be competitive applicants to. Right. And so the, the system of higher education kind of built in these lack of options, not only for the students, but for us as educators who knew the opposite of what the tracking system tells us. Uh, Mahek, what are your thoughts about the role in deciding access to these opportunities, the factors and the role they play? Um, for me, I think that it's incredibly crucial that we consider how uh, inaccessible these opportunities are because it completely shapes how you view higher education and beyond and after higher education comes your career and you know essentially the rest of your life. So um, I think that that is a very good point about equity and making sure it's accessible to everyone. Um, as I said at my school, I think that there's a lot of um, emphasis placed on or there's a lot of prioritizing towards students who are able to get material right away and who are able to understand things right away and those who aren't are um, almost always discouraged from taking the course in the future. And that's something that I've noticed all throughout the Bay Area. Um, all of my other friends who go to different schools also share that experience. So when you put a student on a track at a young age, you're essentially set, leaving them or you're setting them up to stay on that track and not be able to move higher for the rest of their education path. Um, and that's essentially the problem because as we see it, um, as we've been talking, as we move forward, these things impact, you know, whether you go to a four-year or not, and then what internships that you get. Um, I know one of the presentations were about that, and then in turn, what career opportunities you have, which you know can impact your socioeconomic status and the rest of your life. That's such a good point, because while we often think about tracking in, in AP students being leveraged into a certain level of success, we know it's possible for an AP student to drop out of that track. However, for students who are in general education tracks, it's often very difficult for them to move up, right? Or, or up is, is such a, a classist term, but we understand. Um, with that in mind, with tracking and with the idea of being told at a very young age, this is what you can do, this is what you can't do, or not telling them anything at all, what are the consequences of diminishing a young person's expectations of what they can or can't achieve? I would say that the consequences at first would be that you're diminishing their their will and their confidence to even just continue going to school and feeling motivated in their studies every day. And I think that that in itself is is a consequence and it's a personal consequence. And I think that that being able to have that motivation and saying, you know, I I see that the work that I'm doing is going to lead to something greater. And when and when they diminish that confidence and that will, I think it just sets them back. And and not not even that, but from where I grew up, if you if you don't have that willing confidence, you are being pushed into areas that you may not even want to be in and can be pushed into systems that you don't want to be in. And it could be life threatening. And I and, and I and I hate to say it, but it could be deathly at in some circumstances, in some communities, it can get to this point. And so I think that that at the start, being able to to foster and nourish our children when they're at at the at the start of their education system is so pivotal because we there's one error in 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 whatever community that they're in and in some communities can be more unfortunate than others it can really be life threatening 
Um, and then to extend on that point, um, we need to also understand discrimination in the context of race and how that also shapes student experiences at school from a very young age. Um, when we start to look at the data surrounding administration's um, punishments for um, like wrong behavior in class, we start to see that there's a racial bias working against black and brown students and that they're more likely to receive more severe um, punishments or longer suspensions. And so it's, you know, that discrimination and resulting in suspension means they're not at school as, at school as often as other ones as other students and the impact of that is of course missing out on the curriculum which will affect their education which as we can see has a domino effect affecting the rest of their life and so there's that aspect in terms of their education pathway but then it's also training them to under it's shaping how they believe the world will see them when we teach students that they are you know inherently more likely to do certain things or we punish them more severely for things assuming that they'll continue to do them. Um, there's been students that have spoken out about being called into the uh, principal's office for something that happened on a day where they weren't even present um, and you know the effect that that had on their mental health. So when we're teaching students that this is how they deserve to be treated, we're essentially telling them that this is how the rest of their life will look and this is the treatment they will they should expect for the rest of their life, which is something we also need to consider when we're talking about how school and education shapes our path and our future. Building off of that, if you think about being told that you did something wrong when you weren't even there or being suspended constantly for things that aren't that extreme, you kind of think about how that makes you feel like you don't belong. And this whole kind of idea of social belonging has huge psychological impacts. And so if you don't feel like you belong and you feel excluded and you don't feel like you fit in, there have been like so many psychological studies that show that this decreases your well-being, your IQ performance, immune function, health, happiness. I mean, the list goes on and on and on, and not just for a day, for years and years to come. And so there was this really interesting Stanford study where they took um, African-American, European-American freshmen, and just by making the African-American freshmen feel like they belong and feel like they really fit at Stanford, they were able to almost completely reduce the GPA gap between the two races. And so this kind of just comes back to the same point of if you have access to something and if you're treated equally, you will have more or less the same outcomes. And it's just all about kind of providing that opportunity and making it so that people can have expectations of success and that can change their outcome. Um, and I'd just like to add that this bias is really the criminalization of students. Um, and when we're doing that to young kids, we're setting them up to be um, criminalized as adults as well which is when we start to see a lot of prison trends and where we start to see a lot of that data um, surrounding race in the prison system. And we all know that, uh, you know, the impact that going to prison can have on your aspirations for the rest of your life. And so we really can see how events at a young age build up to that and how it's not just an immediate process as it's often depicted. And I just want to add, I think that um, sometimes we, we don't realize that the words we use actually affect the the outcome of people's life in general. And I think that it's um, something that we always learn in, in K through K learning, uh, K, K through eight education is treat others how you want to be treated. And so if you don't treat a person um, with respect and, and just giving them that, that space to be who they are and allow them to be whatever they want to be, then you're limiting those, those expectations of themselves. And I think when we don't have our, our own high expectations for ourselves, then we can't even expect others to hold us to a higher standard. And so it's important that we just be there for each other and just work on being, being a community. And I think that, that that would really shape a lot of the ways that um, 
these expectations and the lack of achievements uh, we see in these uh, lower income neighborhoods or just, just overall education in itself. Um, I know Michael said this in the chat. He said, all you need is one good advocate. And I definitely agree. Someone asked what it means to, or what it could look like to show that, to be treated like you belong. And um, that's exactly what it is. Someone advocating for you, reaffirming, um, or working with you rather than against you. This conversation is flowing so well. Y'all are hitting all the transition points. I want to touch on the idea of the criminalization of students in the school to prison pipeline from my own experience as an as a student and also as an educator primarily. When I taught middle school, I taught middle school in Bed-Stuy, Brooklyn at a predominantly black school. And so I faced, I experienced a variety of socioeconomic factors entering my classroom, right, and impacting the educational environment due to student stress and other issues that were compounding on top of the ability for students to learn. One of those things was I had a student who had some behavioral issues and those issues had, had got him into trouble legally as well. And so one day I was reprimanding that student for, for something that he had done. And he told me, I don't care. I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to come to school tomorrow just to get on your nerves. I'm showing up to class tomorrow. And I looked at that student and I said, I hope you do. I really hope you do. And every student in the classroom, including my teacher's aides, became dead silent and stared at me dumbfounded because everyone just knew I was going to say the opposite to this student. So if the question of what does belonging look like, that's one thing, is making everyone feel welcome in your space, regardless of color, regardless of background, regardless of what you do or don't know about them. That's one thing. And then secondly, I want to touch on the factor of race and how students are treated and how I've witnessed it with my own experience as an educator. I can think of one student particularly who was exceptionally smart. She was brilliant and she was in advanced classes for the 10th grade level, even though she was a freshman. However, she was perceived to have an attitude and was also a dark-skinned student. So whenever she was engaged in a conflict, it was always heightened on her end of what she was accused of doing or not doing. And come to find out, she was going through a very serious personal issue. She was experiencing domestic violence in her relationship as a ninth grader. And even in the following year, when, when a teacher was referring back to that student, he referred to her without having any empathy for her situation, right? And I had to remind him in the moment, well, also, she was being abused at the time when you had that altercation with her. So I think one thing is making everyone feel welcome in the classroom, but also remembering that we need to have empathy for people because we never know what their situation is. This, the question of all you need, the, the statement that was made in the chat of all you need is one good advocate is so true. And we all know that can be life-changing because everyone in this room can probably think of one person who has shifted their direction for the better at one time or another. So my question to the group is along those lines, what structures could have or should have been put in place to change your experience for the better? And what is something that could be done right now to put that plan in motion? I would love to go first. Um, so I spoke a lot about just my experience in the education system. And I definitely think that there's a few things that come straight to mind. Um, one, I think that we should have a required um, A through G requirement to graduate high school. If we want to set up our students to graduate um, and attend college or do whatever they would like, you have to give them the bare, every every opportunity accessible to them. And so that would be my first thing. And then the second thing is I think that we should have um, learning, um, equal learning opportunity, like the curriculum across California. I think that there should be no scenario where a student has to move district to district and feels left behind because they, the uh, different districts are learning different things. And then 
Um, my last thing is that I think that we have to um, acknowledge the differences in um, the, the fundings of our schools and really improve our school districts and improve our, our districts that are in um, lower income communities because they're the ones that are suffering the most. And if we want everyone in California to be uh, have access to just opportunities across the board, then we have to set up our entire California population with those equal opportunities. Thank you so much, Ashley, for that and touching upon the, the funding part of it. I think that the primary barrier to access in, in just about mostly everything is funding. And I think that there's conversations on funding, but then there's the results to that. And I think that there's a lot of times where, where a lot of students and, and even just younger generations are have these promises that are given by by um, certain figures in our in our communities in our schools, but a lot of the times it's broken promises, and these and these and this funding is isn't allocated, and it shows in our schools, it shows in our communities, and it shows in our classrooms. So I think that the the biggest one one of the biggest structures I would say is is the funding to support the structures, and I think uh, in terms of moving forward, it's just being driven by that data, and I think that we 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 can see and especially um, through the data seeing what what communities do we need to help? What communities are struggling right now and what communities need these resources and being able to do that. And not only that, but I, as I did mention before, listening to the youth and their issue-centered advocacy and what they're calling for, what they want and what they see. Because I mean, as, as we know, we are the experts of our own life. We are experiencing this on a daily basis and can see what are, what are the things that we need to work on. So I think that being able to pay attention to these issues advocacy campaigns, whether it is at a system-wide level or a national level or even at your local district levels, I think that it's really important to have those soft skills and really listen um, to what the, what the students are saying and the young leaders. Adding on to what Ashley said in the beginning about the A through G requirements, I think that curriculum is so important. We need to make sure that, you know, everybody has the option to go to college. Not everyone has to go, but everyone should have the option available to them. There should be no reason that they should feel like, you know, it's not for them or it's not something they can accomplish even if they want to. Um, so I think that's key. And then also the decriminalization of students who are who are kids. Um, we need to start looking at, you know, the bias that is seen by administration and combating them, trying to understand why that exists. We need to stop assuming the worst out of students and start seeing them as people who are capable of great success. Still, the words right out of my mouth. I was literally going to say that. Um, I think you know structures need to become more flexible. You know, as Ashley and the heck said, those A through G requirements. Maybe if you don't want to go to college, okay, don't go to college. But at least that gives you the option. And I think more structures need to be put in place to give students more options to kind of pursue success, however they define it. And so that goes back to what I was talking about earlier with work-based learning programs and how those need to be built out and offered to students so that they can pursue whatever it is their dream is and whatever they want to do, regardless of what that kind of little box tells them to do. And that little expectation of success that they have put on them should not limit their, their dreams and what they want to do. I just want to add one more thing. I think that language is very important in this and we have to understand the language we use, especially when we're talking to children. Like um, we have to realize that when you're in these fields, you're talking to a child and you have to understand that we go through things just as well as adults and that you have to be patient and understanding. And I think that that was something that I've, I felt like we were taught, but um, I think somewhere along the lines it's gotten lost and we need to bring it back. All very good points. And I, I particularly want to touch on the idea 
of not only creating pathways for students, but having flexibility in the structure and the flexibility in having multiple pathways for students. Because as we know, there's no one way to get to any place. And we've all experienced that in our lives. Like we've been told, do X, Y, and Z, and you do X, Y, and Z, and it doesn't work out that way because now you got to go to one, two, three. So flexibility and, and pathways and options and making them known to the students and accessible is so important. It's also important for me, it becomes apparent in this conversation that it's important to have flexibility in what you see for yourself in your future and in your own California dream, because there is no fixed California dream. So I'd like to wrap this question up by bringing it full circle back to the beginning and asking the group, what is your California dream today? Um, so I can start off. I, I don't really know. Um, my California dream was always to graduate from a four-year university. And now I'm one quarter away from doing that. And so my dream is kind of, you know, right there. I'm about to, to grab it. Um, but now I kind of have this dream that I don't know what I want to do or where I want to go or, or I don't know. I, kind of like Candace was saying, the flexibility to be successful. So I know that I can define success however I want to. And whatever may come my way, whatever I choose to do, I can pursue it. And I guess my dream for California is for it to truly become the place that my parents had told me it was, for a place that anyone can become anything. And I hope to be able to continue being that voice or kind of working towards that change. And it made me really happy to see the chat kind of, I wasn't able to read it, but I just saw that it was blowing up and it just showed me that this is sparking a conversation and hopefully that conversation will lead to change. And really that's, that's what my California dream is. Um, like I said in the beginning, my California dream was to just graduate high school. And now I'm a first year at UCLA. So that, that in itself shows something. And so now I know that I can do anything and be anything. And I'm going to graduate from UCLA. And I'm going to do and go beyond this. And I want to be a, a model for other Black women that look like me, young, young girls that never thought they had a chance to get to this high place and just be that figure for Black women and just Black women in STEM specifically. Like I said, I'm a neuroscience major. So just showing women, Black women, that we can go above, above everything and just be on whatever path we want to be and just get to that point and have opportunities for everyone. Thank you so much, Ashley, for that. Um, I would say that my California dream, as you all may remember answering the first question, was always very tight-knitted with my families. And I think that my California dream is very rooted in my family family and their hard work and their experiences growing up in California. But I think now really looking at it and looking at what I see in California today is that, you know, that there is no barriers when it comes to race and access and being able not only it's what that person brings and the value that they bring to California and based on their merits. And I think that's that's what I see today. And um, and regardless of what you do and what you look like, that you're able to achieve anything. And, I, and I'm extremely humbled and thankful to, you know, really have you know, my parents and really have them work so hard to get me to where I'm at. So I don't ever want to discredit that. And I think that I have attached my California dream to them a lot. But I realized that they work so hard so that I could have this dream so that I can move forward. And and thinking of myself as being a Latina right now and, and getting involved and as an early growing professional in politics is so, so crazy to me to even think about that. I have been on the boat of making history in San San Diego of electing the first LGBTQ mayor and POC ever in San Diego's history and being a part of that I think that that is just 
the start of something that is so exciting. So I think that when it comes to that, I, I see that my California dream is just starting. So <laughs> um, in, a, in a literal sense, my California dream would be to graduate high school instead of going to college, um, wrapping up these applications and getting in there. But um, I also think that if one thing, if there's one thing I've taken away from all of this, um, it's that while there are a lot of issues, there are a lot of people willing to fix them. And there are a lot of people who have faith in what can be accomplished if we do fix them. And so a lot of my um, ideas for what my future, my place in California looks like is continuing to work alongside people who want to make it better. So that concludes our fireside chat. Thank you so much for being here with us. I'd like to take a moment to thank everyone who helped put all this together, including our moderator, Candace Mays, and our panelists. And I'd like to congratulate all the young leaders who are here to display the work they've been doing throughout the year. Additionally, I want to shout out PolicyWise, a podcast series that is a collaborative effort between the Youth Leadership Institute and California Forward. It's a great resource for continuing the conversation on equity and youth empowerment. It's available on both Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Also, if you enjoyed the session, you won't want to miss our Young Leaders panel. So once again, thank you for joining us this morning, um, and we hope to see all of you in the main session soon. This was a podcast recording of PolicyWise. We are your hosts, Michael and Demi. PolicyWise is a production of Youth Leadership Institute in partnership with California Ford and their Young Leaders Advisory Council. Jared Amonos produced this episode and the music was created by Ian Post and sourced from artistlist.io. If you want to find more great youth content, check out YLI.org and be sure to subscribe to PolicyWise on iTunes and Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review. It really helps. To discuss this episode, engage with us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Facebook at PolicyWisePod and hashtag your discussion with hashtag PolicyWise. See you next time for more youth voice and policy discussion on PolicyWise.